Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. Thank you to everybody for today, but also for Christmas Eve. For all of you who helped to pull that off, thank you, Tamara, and everybody else. We are, in fact, in the first of two Sundays in the Christmas season. So we will have all of the Christmas decorations up this Sunday and next Sunday. And then after that, it'll go away when we enter into a different season altogether, the season of Epiphany which has to do, the season of Epiphany, and there's a reason I'm telling you all this sort of ahead of time, which has to do with the surprise of God and the reach of God and how it is that the people of God participate in the surprise and the reach of God. We will talk for a long time about evangelism and outreach during the season of Epiphany and try to, as best we can, redeem these words and these concepts which for so many have kind of left a bad taste in their mouths, and so we will, we will do that. And it's really, really important, and this gets us back to today, because I need to ask you this question. When you said yes to Jesus, whenever you said, I'm assuming you did at some point say yes to Jesus, what were you saying yes to? I mean, there are a variety of options, I guess, for us. Perhaps you were saying yes, yes, I would like to be relieved from the penalty of my sin in an eternal sort of way, so yes. I would like to not be punished forever. That's not a bad thing. It's just not the only thing. That's not a bad thing at all. Maybe what you said was, yes, I will count myself amongst the saved, and in so doing, I will do my best to be transformed. My life will be transformed so that I live better next week than I did last week. So it's sort of a a self-help kind of a thing, and that too fits. That's just not all there is. If you said yes, What was it that you were saying yes to? I'm gonna come back to this at the very end. Here's here's what I want you to know. In the yes that was spoken for Josiah today, in the yes that you said at some point in your journey, you need to understand that your yes, in God's mind, means that you have counted yourself as part of a larger family, a larger story. A larger family and a larger story which gives context to your life, I mean, probably not the first time you will hear it, maybe because of some skirmishes you may have had around the dinner table, I don't know, the last couple of weeks, maybe this is not the first time you've heard it in the last, or uh, the only time you've heard it in the last couple of weeks, but come to find out Christianity is another sense in which it's not all about you or me. Not all about you, not all about me. Now, it involves you, it involves me, but it's about God. Baptism, yes, 
involves Josiah. Your decision to say yes, yes, involves you. But it's about the larger story and the larger family to which we now belong that gives shape and context and meaning and purpose to our lives. You have to understand that when you say yes in any way and at any level, you are yesing your way into something bigger than you and better than you. You have to know that. You have to understand that you are yesing your way into something. Context is everything. And to demonstrate that, I want you to see. So we just read these very kind of disturbing verses, and here it is. We still have all the Christmas lights up, and somebody's already trying to knock off the baby Jesus. Well, how did we get to that point? How did we get to that point? It's just Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Well, in order to kind of give you more context, to bring us up to speed, to to have us understand how we got to this point, I want to take you all the way back to the birth, the very birth, the moment of the birth of Jesus, and give you about 20 verses out of the book of Luke, but there's someone much cuter than me who's going to do that for us today, and so I've asked Berkeley Smith to recite from memory the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. Would you help me welcome Berkeley Smith? That's a perfect place to stand, baby. Yes, right there. The Christmas story, Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everybody went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. While there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over the fox at night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in gloves and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Luke 2, 1 through 20. Oh, baby. So good. Thank you very much. Oh, I got it. Thank you. Thank you. Woof. Very well done. Very well done. Now, kind of, now we're, kind of, um, we're almost up to speed. Everybody kind of get how that fits, how our scripture today fits in a much larger 
timeline. It's, it's almost as if Berkeley helped us today by doing a little bit of a, of a dot to dot for us. Like we, we had a little three verse section of scripture today. Go ahead and, and play that. A uh, little three verse section today, but that little three verse section, if you don't know how to kind of place it, it's just a dot. But what Berkeley helped us to do, and you can turn the sound off, Grant. Uh, what Berkeley helps us to do is kind of put us in context. Context, right? Context is super important. Context, the larger story going on behind what you've just heard, gives context to what you just heard. What Berkeley said gives context to what Tyler read. Make sense? Context is so important. Listen, uh, let this be the first, maybe the last announcement of 2019 and the, the first announcement for next year's disciple class. <laughs> the larger story of scripture is super important because I am not convinced, and I'm, and I'm your pastor, I've been to school for a lot of days and really got really good grades and some bad grades uh, in school, studying the reality that we can only know what the individual stories mean when we know what the larger story is trying to say. Context, context, context. It, but it's, it's not just scriptural context, though, is it? There's almost a, a familial context. Did you, did you recognize... If you were together with family over the holidays, did you recognize, again, that you live your life against a larger backdrop of your family context? I, I recognize that. This is why when the Middendorfs all get together in Kansas City, and we wish Jimmy and Brittany could have been there, but they couldn't be there, but it was me and my family, and it was my sister and her family, and my mom and dad, and we, we do some of the same things every year. So we have some of the same traditions every year. We tell some of the same questionable jokes every year, we tell them. We have the same menu every year. And yes, yes, we again this year had sardines on, on Christmas breakfast morning. Don't know why, we just do. We just do, okay? But I want to tell you something about this sardine tradition. Yes, we actually have sardines straight out of the can. It's a part of the scrambled eggs. It's the biscuits. It's the cheese. It's the coffee. It's all that. And it's sardines. I don't know. I don't know. We've even tried to research it to try to figure out why we do it. Nobody knows, we just have done it for decades and nobody knows why, but I can tell you this, the folks who are added to the family don't eat sardines in order to belong to the family. They eat sardines because they do already belong to the family, if that makes sense, right? It's not a qualifying thing. It's just a way to understand oneself to be in a larger family to understand oneself against the backdrop of a larger family and a larger story. Now, we do, when we offer a class during the Advent season called Blue Christmas, because imagine if you didn't have that family connection to celebrate each holiday season. Imagine if it was absent, or imagine if it was just painful, only painful. Like if you were to take all that I enjoyed over the last several days and subtract it and replace it either with nothing or with something negative, I would be in desperate need of a class like Blue Christmas. Because we are meant to live our lives against larger backdrops. Our lives are giving meaning and purpose by the context behind our individual lives. And I am thrilled to belong 
to a family that gathers in Kansas City. I am thrilled to belong to a family that gathers here in Oklahoma City at 4400 Northwest Express. I'm thrilled because you all give meaning and purpose. Meaning, purpose, a sense of belonging, definition to the most important words in life, not just faith. You all, the Middendorf family, the larger family of faith, give meaning and context and purpose to my life in ways that I can't just generate for myself. The book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew in particular, amongst all the gospels, the gospel of Matthew works the hardest, the hardest, to tell you the larger story of what it is that God is doing in and through Christ. And let me sum it up for you. In the gospel of Matthew, you have the clearest demonstration that God takes the people of God, Israel, who then become the person of God in Christ in the hopes that then there can again be a new people of God known as the church. All right, this is really important. You need to hear this. You have Israel, the people of God, and in so many ways, in so many ways, they succeed and they fail and they succeed and they fail. So you have the people of God who become the person of God. Let me stop here and say it's very important that we understand this Jesus. To be both fully God, right? Son of God. But also fully human or humanity or new Israel, us. So the people of God become the person of God so that we might again be the people of God. So far so good, makes sense? Context. You can't really understand what God is doing in and through Christ without the larger context of what God is doing in all of human history. That's why you have the begats in the first chapter of Matthew. And rather than (laughs) quoting this from memory, which I cannot, I will just read to you verse 17. Matthew goes to great lengths to connect the dots for us, to give us some idea of the larger picture, the larger context. So all the generations, this is after the begats, from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David, that David, to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Connect the dots so that you can see the larger context, the larger family to which Jesus belongs, the larger story to which Jesus has given himself. What did you say yes to? What did you say yes to? Berkeley, thank you so much for doing that. Beautiful. Do you want to choose somebody else in the church to memorize 20 verses and come up and do it next week? No, okay. (laughs) So after that, and we'll talk more about this later on in the church year, you have these three wise men who come by. These three wise men come by. This is in the time of King Herod, who, by the way, was a terrible person, like a dangerously terrible, violent person. When he thought that his children were conspiring against him, he had his own children killed. When he thought that his wife was conspiring against him, he had his wife killed. As he was dying, he was afraid that people weren't going to mourn his death, and so he said, go to Jericho, find 10 people, and kill them so that the people of Jericho will weep and people will think that they're weeping at my funeral. That King Herod. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born, wise men came from the east 
came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? This is Herod asking. Wonder why he would ask. For we have observed, no, this is the wise man asking. For we have observed his star at the rising and have come to pay him homage. So having heard this, that particular nasty King Herod says, oh, I'd like to hear more about this competitor king. Why don't you go, find out where he is, come back and tell me, and then I'll go and pay my respects. So the wise men said, okay, we'll go look. So they followed the star, and they finally happen upon the child, his mother and father. Verse 10, when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for her their own country by another road. Now this is where our scripture picks up. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Okay. Verse 14, then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, that is borrowed from Hosea 11.1. 1. Was Hosea predicting what would happen in Matthew chapter 2? Not so much. Because to say so would subtract meaning from what the original context was in Hosea. And we need for Hosea to keep this original context so that we can have a better understanding of the larger context, the larger thing that God is doing. What Hosea is talking about there in 11.1, Hosea is remembering the Exodus. The Exodus. When the people of God served as slaves under the thumb of Pharaoh, but they cried out, and God hears the crying out of these Hebrew people and rescues them out from underneath Pharaoh's control. They have to cross the Red Sea before they are finally, finally freed. And on the other side of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army is now defeated. They are finally free to be God's people. When invoking this memory in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew is saying that God is doing this kind of thing again. That God who performed, let's say, the exodus and liberated God's people from bondage is again liberating people from bondage in and through this one. I don't know how you understand this Jesus, says Matthew to us and anyone who would read the gospel. I don't know how you understand this Jesus, but you need to understand that this Jesus is still about liberation from captivity, just like God did all the way back in the book of Exodus. So when you said yes, when you said yes, you said yes to a God who releases people from captivity. What kind of captivity? Yes. Yes. Captivity of a blue Christmas, perhaps. The kind of isolation and loneliness 
that can cripple a person, and I have seen it. Liberation from perhaps an addiction to a substance, to a lifestyle, to an opinion. <laughs> you can be addicted to all the above. This Jesus takes a similar sort of liberation sort of posture against all forms of captivity. This Jesus is that God who wins liberation for captives. And all God's people said, pretty good. Verse 16, now when Herod, this is awful. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Now it says in your Bible, a voice was heard in Ramah wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. But this is a nod toward the nightmare, the nightmare of exile. There were a couple of moments of exile in the Old Testament. The Assyrian exile, and then later the Babylonian captivity and exile. And people died in exile. Exile was brutal in its scope. People ripped out of their homes. You know who was most vulnerable? The most vulnerable were most vulnerable to the exile. The report was that women and children ripped out of their homes and forced to travel long distances to live somewhere else. So many of them didn't make it. And it's two of people who had suffered the loss of generations of people because of the violence of the exile. It's to those people that these verses are written in Jeremiah against a backdrop of hope. What's being said here in Jeremiah 31, 15, God is saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. There will be an end to exile. Your rescuer is on his way. I know there has been heartache. I know there has been loss. I know that you are inconsolable, but I'm coming. And sure enough, there was the return from exile. So what's being said here cannot be separated from what was being said there in Jeremiah 31, 15. Like we said about the Exodus, this God is one who hates captivity and fights for people to be liberated from captivity. In the same sort of way, Matthew is saying that God is this Jesus and this God is still trying to bring people home who have suffered. This God is still bringing people home from the various places where exile happens. By the way, exile is still possible. <laughs> you know how captivity is still possible? Exile is also still possible. And that God who worked the miracle of return from exile is working another miracle in and through Christ. There is heartache, there is bloodshed. There is political and power lust that costs people lives. And into this situation comes God again. Again. What is it that you said yes to? Do you realize that you said yes to a God 
whose story includes both liberation from captivity and restoration from exile. Do you realize that you said yes to a God who is all the time working toward liberation for the captive and all the time working toward return and restoration of those in exile, no matter the nature of your exile? Again, again, I think of a blue Christmas. That's gotta feel like exile. Isolation. But exile can happen in a number of different ways. And perhaps some of you, even today, December 29th, 2019, perhaps some of you today feel something of the pain of exile for one reason or another. You said yes, if you said yes. You said yes to a God who's all the time busy restoring folks from exile. All the time. Matthew wants you to understand that that God is represented in this Jesus. That that story continues in and through this Jesus. The story wherein God takes the people of God who then becomes the person of God so that we again can become the people of God. It all fits. Verse 19, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph, who probably never slept well, right? <laughs> so many dreams for Joseph. Probably never slept well. Appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are seeking the life, the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, and after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth. This is where Nazarenes start thumping their chest a little bit. Yeah, he did. <laughs> so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazorian. <laughs> Here's the problem. We really can't find that particular prophecy anywhere in the Old Testament. <laughs> Nowhere. In fact, in fact, we think maybe it didn't say exactly what gets translated into our Bibles. But there are a couple of, there are a couple of options. And one of the options is what we have here. That he would be from this town, Nazareth, known for its hardworking poor people. And in fact, the Church of the Nazarene has traditionally and historically taken that particular line of interpretation where this verse is concerned. The Church of the Nazarene takes its name from this mindset. We want to be identified with Christ the Nazarene who lived in and amongst people who were hardworking and poor and in need of a savior, in need of help. And so we will call ourselves the Church of the Nazarene. I like it. There is another possibility. The other possibility is that this word Nazar, Hebrew word, which is translated as branch, might have had something to do with this verse in Isaiah chapter 11. Okay? In fact, let me go back to this. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken, spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He would be called a Nazarian, but possibly so that he would be called a branch from the tree. 
Which tree? This one. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, I, I like to study all this stuff relative to the interpretation of Scripture and the original languages. That's still interesting to me. And I like especially to see that there are trends, like more and more people interpret something uh, a different way than they used to. And I got to tell you, this is the translation and the interpretation that's picking up steam out there. In other words, here is another way in which Matthew says to us, this Jesus is that God. This Jesus must be understood against the larger context of what is happening out there. Against the larger context of what God is doing in all of Scripture. Against the larger family of faith, against the larger story of what God is doing in all of life and all of humanity. This Jesus is that God. Doesn't mean that it didn't have meaning for the original audience in Isaiah 11, it did. In fact, what we think has happened is, is this. Isaiah, who probably was a part of the cabinet, let's say, the inner circle for that particular king at the time, was so disappointed in his Israelite king that he kind of went back to his quarters and wrote, someday we'll have a better leader. Someday we'll have a better king. Matthew was saying, Isaiah was right. Here's our better king. Here's our better king. In other words, understand Jesus against the backdrop of the larger thing that God is doing. But I want you, and I want for myself, for the members of my nuclear family, for the members of my extended family, for the members of my family of faith, I want us to understand our lives and our stories against that same backdrop. Against that same larger Backdrop of what God is doing in the world. It's not about you. Rooted in hope. Rooted in hope means the study of context and backdrop. Rooted communicates that you are part of something larger, deeper, bigger than yourself. Rooted in hope adds a sense of purpose and future. To be rooted in hope is to admit that you are not your own, but that you have found your place amongst a particular people who are on a particular journey toward a particular vision and outcome. And it is against that backdrop that our lives take place. In other words, struggles with cancer, struggles with divorce, Failure, poverty, but also victory, love, joy, and prosperity all take place against this larger backdrop. And all of those episodes in our lives, when we say yes, are given meaning by the larger story that is playing out behind us. When you said yes, if you said yes, what did you say yes to? Did you just say yes in the hopes that you would be relieved of the punishment, the eternal condemnation 
that awaits those who don't say yes? Okay. I have really good news. Maybe even better than that news. There's more than that. What did you say yes to? Did you, did you say yes when you said yes, if you said yes? Did you say yes to the hope that you could be a better person in 2020 than you were in 2019? God knows the world needs us to be better people in 2020 than you were in 2019, and all God's people said. Said all the honest people in the room. Is that what you said yes to? That's good too. And, and, I think I know where you can find some resources to be that better human being in 2020 than you were in 2019. I think I know where you can find some of that hope and some of that energy. But I hope you were paying attention as we baptized Josiah Edward Chesney. Because we didn't just relieve him of the penalty of the sins that he might someday commit. Probably will commit. Yeah, actually will commit. We adopted and initiated him, or God did, into a larger thing, a larger story. He will never be without context. He will never be without a larger family, and not just because of the people sitting here, but because of the people sitting here and the people sitting everywhere that understand themselves to be adopted into the same story. And that larger family and that larger story gives context but also meaning and purpose to every moment and every movement in Josiah's life. If you said yes, you said yes to the God of the larger story and the larger family, and you have at least offered to you Meaning and purpose for every moment and every movement. Now, did you say yes? Or is it time for a deeper, fuller yes? Two things and I'm done. Two things. One having to do with sardines. I'll save that for a second. Next week, January 5th, we will have an 8.30 service. The 8.30 service, led by Dr. Tashin and the folks in our Word and Table community. That service will be a Wesley Covenant service, which we have the first Sunday of every new year. And here's the purpose of a Wesley Covenant service, to improve the quality of your yes. 8.30, we're gonna set it up in the, in the atrium, and all of us who are interested in improving the quality of our yes should be there so that Dr. Tashin, as only he can do, can walk us through the depth of the intended yes. And now for the sardines. <laughs> I want to remind you that at our house... <laughs> Nobody at gunpoint is forced to eat sardines in order to qualify. We eat because we already belong. What I said was we eat because we already belong. And every time we eat, we're reminded that we belong. 
Every time we eat, we're reminded that there are resources for this journey. Every time we eat, we're reminded of the larger story. Remember, the Exodus is always in the backdrop behind this particular story of the redefined Passover meal. We dare not lose our Jewish heritage. Because if we lose our Jewish memory, we lose our Jesus. And we lose appreciation for the larger thing that God is still doing, liberating, restoring, making room so that the person of God might again become the people of God. So if you're helping us, go ahead and come on down. Heavenly Father, bless these elements and with them nourish our bodies and our imaginations that we might consider how it is that this larger story gives our lives context and meaning. God bless these elements with these little pieces of bread and little sips from the cup. May we see how our lives are lived out against the backdrop of the liberating, restoring thing, the, restora the restorative thing that you are doing. Perhaps in us, but perhaps also through us and with us and around us. God, with the bread and with the cup, move us closer and closer to being people who fully live up to and into this label of the body of Christ, the tangible, touchable expression of your heartbeat, your nature, and your character on full display here and now. In other words, God, tell us how to go about being good family as we find ourselves in this larger story. In other words, God, tell us how to be better workers, better workers, better employees, better employers, as we find ourselves against this larger thing that you are doing. In other words, God, help us to be better as we take our places in the story and amongst the people of God, the body of Christ. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pew to the left, and to come forward. Some of you are visiting today, so hopefully I can walk you through this so that it won't be so unfamiliar to you. Exit your pew to the left and come forward with your hands cupped to receive this gift and this moment of grace. This is the only way you can get it. As you approach a person with a plate of bread, that person will snap off a piece and place it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, dip it immediately into the cup. Don't eat that bread just yet, but dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then take and eat and then find a place to pray a very specific prayer, if you will, today. God, I want to say yes, but I want to say a better yes than I've ever said. A better yes than I've ever said. If you need a prayer for healing, if you'll come to one of these side padded altars, someone will meet you there and pray that prayer for you. If you want to come to one of these kneeling benches here up front, we won't assume a thing, but we will at some point come and pray for you and let you know that you are not alone or you can circle right back around and pray at your seats. 
Perhaps you want to make a special trip up to this same baptismal font that we used for Josiah earlier. If you would just like to dip your fingers into this water to remember the moment of your adoption into the family, you're welcome to do so. If you can't come to us, Jason and McCall are coming to you. Last thing, you may be asking yourself, well, who's eligible? Who gets to come to this table today? Great news. Any of you who understand your need for grace, if you understand your need for grace, no matter what happened this morning, this week, this month, this year, this life, if you understand your need for grace, this is where you belong. That's all it takes. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on, he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, remember me. So in remembrance of this one, in remembrance of this story, I want to ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pews to the left, and to come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant to nourish the people of God.